Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. For the Sunday debate this week, a dip into the archive back to 2019, when we invited the UK's top wine experts to settle a rivalry for the ages between the so-called old and new worlds, which region makes the best wine. Representing the old world, that's wine producers such as France, Italy, Spain and Germany, was the award-winning wine writer and broadcaster Jancis Robinson. She's a wine columnist for the Financial Times and qualified master of wine. Fighting for the modernising spirit of the new world, that's regions such as California, Australia, South Africa and Chile, was Oz Clark, presenter, author and the youngest ever British wine taster of the year. Our host for the debate, in which we partnered with Waitrose, was Amelia Singer, wine writer broadcaster and founder of Amelia's Wines. Let's join Amelia and our panel now. Thank you. Well, thank you everyone. Um, it's really exciting for me to be here. I've been a fan of Intelligence Squared for many years and for me, I've been in the wine trade for 11 years, and to be on stage with two of the most inspirational people in the trade is a real honour, so thank you both. Before we go into a bibulous battle, I'm going to ask both of our speakers tonight, what really got them into wine? How did this passion begin? So, Jancis, how did you get into the world of wine? I certainly wasn't brought up with it, but I had a boyfriend at Oxford whose father gave him slightly too much money much of which was spent on wining and dining me. And I had a, the bottle of Chambon Musigny Les Amoureuses, 1959, at a restaurant called The Rose Revived outside Oxford. And it was, I just, it was just so much better than student plonk. <laughs> uh, but it did the biz. <laughs> Thank you. And you, Oz? I started drinking when I was three. Um, we were having a 
a family picnic on the River Ouse near Cambridge. Um, my brother was drowning in the river. Um, my mother was having hysterics. My father was trying to rescue him, and I noticed there was a bottle of damson wine. And nobody was looking, so I drank it. <laughs> and, uh, oh, my brother did survive, by the way. Um, but uh, I very nearly didn't. My father got out of the, the river and discovered um, uh, one bedraggled son here and then one rather fat, pink one, fast asleep <laughs> on the... He picked me up by the legs, whacked me in the stomach, um, and most of the wine um, exited en- uh, whence it had entered my system. Um, so that put me off drinking wine till I was about 18. But it's always left me with a, a great love of wines that taste of damsons. <laughs> Mostly because they taste just as good on the way back up as they do on the way down. <laughs> and moving swiftly on. <laughs> um, Jatsis, would you care to make your speech for the Old World Wines? With Pleasure. (laughs) So, in the old days, by which I mean the 1980s and 1990s, there really was an enormous difference between the old and the new worlds of wine, which could be summed up as tradition versus technology. And the two worlds were actually pretty much at war at that stage. A lot of new world wine producers would, would talk darkly about dirty French wine, and French wine people would dismiss New World wine as vin de pharmacien, a sort of chemist's wine, as indeed very famous French wine man described Penfold's Grange, the most celebrated Australian wine which I brought along to one of Bernard Pivot's apostrophe television programs once. Um, Then came flying winemakers, very highly trained, university-qualified anologists, largely from Australia, zoomed in uh, when there wasn't anything to do in the Southern Hemisphere and literally scrubbed up old-world cellars, showed Europeans how to make technically perfect, clean wines with lots of nice fruit in them. And today, pretty much everyone all over the wine world has the technology to make good wine. It's it's easy nowadays to make technically perfect wines wherever you you are. And tradition is no longer overwhelmingly the king in the old world. Very few of the current generation of old world wine producers do things simply out of habit or what their antecedents did. They have all gone to wine school now. They all understand the science. And wine faults that were once rife, as Oz and I no, from our misspent youths, uh, really are a thing of the past. When was the last time you had a, a, a bottle that was te- had a technical fault other than a, a, a poor cork? The other thing is that all of the young generation in the old world now go routinely to the new world to do internships. Cyrielle Rousseau, from the famous domaine Armand Rousseau and Gevry Chambertin, worked in both Australia and New Zealand before she went back to Gevry Chambertin. So it's a much more, it's a global uh, village of wine now. And and producers, the current generation of producers have friends in both old and new worlds. They've got shared experiences, shared techniques. They communicate when they've got a problem. 
Old world producers no longer hide band by tradition, but they respect it where appropriate, and they now know why they do things. And incidentally, tradition in wine has never been so respected. Today's old world producers do what their grandparents did, not what their agrochemical-obsessed parents did. When New World wine producers visit Europe, on the other hand, they fall over themselves with admiration for the best of the old world. Scratch an Aussie wine producer and you'll find they've got a little house in Burgundy or they've done an internship in Bordeaux. So today, the wine world really is one big global community, with the only difference between the old and new world being their natural features. Terroir, no longer seen as something the French have a monopoly on. Rock, soil, drainage, aspect, slope, elevation, proximity of forests and water, climate, all the temperature, rainfall, sunlight hours, risk of fire nowadays. That is what marks the big difference between the old and the new world. It's an unavoidable fact, even for Oz, that in the old world they've had centuries, in all cases millennia sometimes, to identify and make the best of the best terroir. Their knowledge now is so great that they can codify them, like in Burgundy, you know, village wines, Premier Cru, Grand Cru, all the rest. And they no longer bother to grow vines on sites that have proved to be less promising. So when you're tasting a bottle of old world wine, what you're tasting is tried and tested geography in a bottle. All wine, all good wine, rather than sort of industrial plonk, is geography in a bottle, as Hugh and I always say when we're talking about our lovely new atlas. Uh, but in the new world, a lot of this is pretty random, the choice of geography. Someone's got an estate with a, a spare paddock, let's try planting some vines. All sorts of new, relatively untried areas. Now, it may be argued that innovation is the new world's advantage, but it's not the monopoly of the new world. The old world may have this wonderful foundation of knowing where the best, vines, uh, best places to grow vines are, but today's wine world is so competitive that you survive only by making better wine every year. So, in the old world, it's more in flux than I've ever known They are experimenting all over the place, making orange wines, natural wines, aging them in amphora, clay, concrete, ceramic, eggs, whatever you'd like. There is so much energy and excitement going on among the current generation in the old world. But with an old world wine, you're tasting the solid foundation of history and successful experimentation. Good old world wines have a grunt to them, depth, savour rather than sweetness. Uh, as I'm going to encourage you to taste now in your glass with the kind of non-angular sides uh, and you will see, here we have mm, that is Tuscany in a glass Colimassaru Reserva 2015 from Montecucco where vines have been grown since at least the time of the Etruscans and possibly earlier, where they think possibly the earliest sort of, uh, the earliest vines of Sangiovese, which constitutes the, the greatest part, 80% of this wine, the Tuscan grape. There's another 10%, Ciliegiolo, which is a the parent, the Tuscan parent of Sangiovese. So this is a very, very local wine expressing a spot on the globe uh, and history, which could not be rivaled directly by any New World wine. So I mentioned two Tuscan grape varieties. Not only does the Old World have tried and tested terroir for wine, It has the grape varieties, 
largely growing exactly where they should nowadays in their homeland. Big swing away from international varieties all over the world to planting indigenous grape varieties. But the New World has no indigenous varieties other than some rather dodgy Asian ones. Which um, uh, uh, This is not a, not a racist comment, it's just about the vines. Um, now, admittedly, these Asian ones have a long history, but not of producing good quality wine. So the European vine species, which is called Vitis vinifera, rules the world and is responsible for probably 99.95% at least of all the wines you've tasted, and certainly all the decent wines you've tasted. So, all the time, New World vignons are borrowing from the Old World, particularly the Old World's vine varieties, and still experimentally working out not only which terroirs work, but which vine varieties work where. Compare the establishment of the New World wine regions, the oldest was in South America in the 16th century, um, with how long the great terroirs of Europe have been around, since at least the time of the ancient Greeks and, or Romans. So today, we're lucky enough to revel in old world wines that demonstrate the combination of history, getting the right vine variety in the right place, made by producers who now have a superb grasp of technique and science, as well as a healthy respect for tradition, And all the new world can do is try to make the best copies they can using European raw materials. Some will work. Some have already proved they work. But the new world wine scene is still dominated by work in progress. If I look at my own cellar, 90% of the wines in it are old world because I feel that so many of the new world wines, good as they are, are not yet as good as they could be. They are works in progress. So, finally, I would ask you all, and you're presumably wine lovers, to look into your memories and think of all the really great wines that you've been lucky enough to taste. And if you're anything like me, you will find that even though I have enjoyed some, some superb New World wines, uh, even though the New World constitutes as much as 40% of vineyard area planted all over the world, by far the majority of the great wines that I've tasted, and possibly you, have come from the magical, almost spiritually uplifting combinations of history and geography that make up Europe's finest and inimitable terroir. Now, amazingly, Oz, because I thought I was running out of time, I skipped over something here. So I have, I'm nearly at the end, And that will allow Oz, who we know tends to be a little gabby, uh, you, <laughs> you can um, talk. You've got a few more minutes. Talk oh. slower. Me, talk slower. <laughs> well, I'll say, in that case, I'll just say thank you. <laughs> Okay, Oz, you've now been given a period of grace, so let's see what you've got. got well, I don't like to bring my friend uh, James May into discussions about the finer things of life, uh, but he did give me one good piece of advice. He said, never speak in public for longer than you can make love.
Oh dear. Honestly, putting the words James May and making love in the same sentence is just too horrible to contemplate. Never mind. So let's get back to the finer things in life. Where does great art come from? Where does the genius of Picasso and Van Gogh and Leonardo da Vinci come from? Does it come from trying to perfect the old style? No. It comes from breaking out, following a burning vision unlike any other that has gone before. And where does great music come from? Benjamin Britten, Brahms, Beethoven, Bach... The Beatles, if you like. Were they trying to perfect the old style? No. They had something entirely new, pulsating in their minds, hurting their souls with its intensity. And those great leaps forward, they're made not by those who try to hone and perfect the old, but they're made by those with a blazing desire to create something new. And so it is with those who create wine. Because this is 2019. Creating wine is not just about refining and perfecting flavors we already know. Wine, at its most exciting, is about trying to imagine and then create flavors and styles that we don't know. What is the vision of flavor that the great winemakers have swirling around in their brain that they can't put words to, that they've never yet experienced, that just beyond the reach of language, but which impels them to head out into the unknown, searching Searching for a wine with flavors and aromas that the world has never yet known. And maybe never will know. But the search, the pursuit of something that tingles with excitement and uncertainty. That uncertainty of genius. That search demands a new world state of mind. It's like going to university to study, oh, I don't know, history or medicine or mathematics and saying, I want to learn everything that is already known. That's the old world way. But what the great scholars say is I want to discover what is not yet known. That is the new world way. So, is the new world a place? Or is it a state of mind? Well, it's both. But above all, it's a state of mind. New world wine can happen anywhere. But you have to want it to. So what does that mean? Well, one of the most basic things is is something very simple. It's, It's a difference of attitude. I've been talking in rather rarefied terms about the thrill of creating something new. But it doesn't have to be rarefied. The most basic, everyday wines that we now all enjoy were made possible only 
by a new world state of mind. And that in its simplest form puts the wine drinker and their pleasure before everything else. Now, l- let me explain. The, the, the typical old world producer would say something like, oh, uh, we have been making wine for... 500 years, and um, if you don't like it, that's not my problem. (laughs) That's the German approach. (laughs) The New World approach is, what do you people like to drink? You know, we're going to make you something you like to drink, and we're going to label it as simply as can be. Now, at the beginning of our wine revolution in this country, I remember I was at the London Wine Trade Fair tasting some miserable, joyless muscadets or something like that. And this rough... Oh, you remember muscadet? It's on the way back. Jantus will tell you. (laughs) And this this rough, hairy, frankly malodorous Aussie sidled up and he said, hey, what do you blokes like to drink? Uh, and I, I must admit, almost to get rid of him, I said, oh, well, you know, we'd like our whites to uh, um, oof, taste of um, peaches and our uh, reds to taste of uh, blackcurrants. And, and, and we'd sort of like them to cost at about, oh, £3.99. And now, please, um, I, I'm working and you smell uh, going of a bath. And, and honestly, and off he went. Uh, and about a year later, I was at London Wine Trade Fair again. And... This hairy Aussie turned up for a second time and he had some bottles with him. And he said, here, taste this. And I said, oh God, all right. And it's a white wine. And I tasted it and I said, good God, that tastes of peaches. And he said, yeah, that's what you said you liked. (laughs) I said, how much is this? He said, £3.99. That's what you said you wanted to pay. And then he said, he had a red wine there, and he said, here, taste this. And he said, I said, good gracious, that smells of blackcurrant. He said, yeah, that's what you said you liked. And I said, how much is this? He said, £3.99, that's what you said you wanted to pay. And obviously this Aussie had gone back to Australia and said, ah, I've been up with the bloody whinging palms, whinging away as usual, but never mind. You know, they say, well, what they say is they want white wines to taste like peaches, and they want black wines to taste like red wines to taste like blackcurrants. They want to pay £3.99 a bottle, so let's go out and make it. And the wines were labelled Chardonnay or Shiraz, with the guy's name and the word Australia No highfalutin, incomprehensible terms. In one stroke, democratizing wine. Sweeping away the snobbery of generations. Making it so easy to say, I like the taste. I can afford it. I can understand the label. I can pronounce it. I'll buy it. attitude. Keep the label simple. Give the consumers pleasure at a price they're prepared to pay. But how can you do this? Well, one of the most important things about the new world is control, about men and women taking control. Now, especially, this is important with water 
and with sunshine, controlling irrigation and controlling the amount of sunshine that reaches the grapes. So control nourishing the grape, control ripening the grape. A new world is about freedom of choice, being able to plant what you want, where you want, and to make whatever kind of wine you want. Lack of bureaucratic rules, no stifling traditions. But I'm getting thirsty. So you must be too. So let's see what my red wine says about the New World way. So my wine is made by St. Clair. It's a Syrah from the Gimlet Gravels in Hawke's Bay, New Zealand, and it's 2018. Now, the first thing they used to say was, ah, you can't make red wine in New Zealand. It's too cold. Well, actually, it was worse than that. They said, it's barely worth trying to make wine at all. After the Second World War, an international commission set out to examine all the vineyards of the world. And they set out to examine the vineyards of New Zealand, and they tasted the muck that they were making there. And they declared, in any other wine-producing country, these wines would be regarded as unfit for human consumption. Filth! Well, that's bad news for New Zealand, surely. Well, actually, no. Perfect conditions to create a great new world wine country from scratch. If your only wine tradition is trying to poison each other, it can be amazingly liberating. You can wipe the slate clean. You can start again with absolutely no cobwebby baggage of old traditions and old wine styles that nobody wanted and nobody liked. You can map out a glittering future and it's up to you to shape it how you want. Now, the South Island of New Zealand, they didn't have any vines at all until the 1970s. And by the 1980s, 10 years later, Cloudy Bay Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc from the South Island of New Zealand was the most famous white wine in the world. Its very first vintage, 1985, won the title of Best Sauvignon Blanc in the World. And those grapes were grown on land so bony and stony and useless that sheep starved on it. <laughs> and it only cost $75 an acre to buy. From nothing. Great wine. Unlike any ever tasted before anywhere in the world. All because David Honan had a vision of something startling and brilliant and the freedom to put that crazy dream into reality. Now, red wines were different. It is cool in New Zealand. But there was one spot where the locals thought you just might be able to ripen Cabernet and Merlot now and then. And that was at Hawke's Bay on the North Island's east coast. And when I first went there, there were only four acres of a farm called Temata that could produce decent Cabernet. So I went for a drive around the region and looked at all these heavy, dark, rain-sodden soils. And I thought, they'll never be able to ripen red wine grapes here, surely. And then I saw it. 
hey, what's that ugly, barren wasteland? I mean, it was up the valley. It was next to the prison. Part of it was a rubbish dump. Uh, most of it, though, was actually a a drag racing track. Hey, stop the car. And I leapt out, scrambled over a ramshackled fence and pure gravel, so pure that nothing grew there. You couldn't even graze it. And that's why it was being used for drag racing. But, but, but surely, warm, free-draining gravel in a region cursed by too many cyclonic downpours, surely this was your Cabernet site. And they told me more. They oh, you need to irrigate. But one of the southern hemisphere's deepest aquifers ran right below the gravel. You can use that. You wouldn't be allowed to use that in Bordeaux. And they said, oh, the temperature here is two to three degrees centigrade warmer than a few miles away closer to the coast. The soil itself is five degrees centigrade warmer during the summer. And I remember exclaiming, you guys... Say you want to create a new Bordeaux, a new Margot, a new Poyac. It's here, right next to the prison. <laughs> Being used for a drag racing track. Well, not anymore. This is now the Gimlet Gravels, New Zealand's most famous warm red wine site. Full of Cabernet and Merlot, but also because this is the new world full of Syrah, too. Now, uh, you couldn't do that in Bordeaux. The winemaker is St. Clair. They're famous producers of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc in the South Island, but they wanted to try their hand at ripe, dark reds. Now, you'd find that a bit difficult in Marlborough. It's a bit too cool down there. So you go to the North Island, to the Gimlet Gravels instead. Now, no one says you can't. This is the new world. It's as if someone in Burgundy said, oh, I think I'll have a go at making Bordeaux as well. That's the old world. It doesn't happen. You're stuck with what you're stuck with. Okay. Oh, God, look at it. Hello, yeah. she. Well, you start with what you're stuck with in the old world, but in the new world, you can try whatever you think might work and make a beautiful, scented, unexpected Syrah red like this. So where are we? We're in a new world where you have freedom of choice, where you can make whatever kind of wine you like, from whatever type of grape you fancy, on whatever patch of land you think will work, and no one will tell you what you must or mustn't do, and no one will throw ancient laws and restrictive practices in your face. If you think it'll work, if you think you can make something exceptional, if you think you can sell it, then go ahead and do it. And in our current world, we're concerned about carbon emissions, about sustainability, about minimum intervention winemaking, is ever more important. The new world way of thinking is the one which will provide solutions. New Zealand's vineyards are now well over 90% sustainably farmed, not because of laws forcing the farmer's hands, but because it's the right thing to do. Use of wild yeasts, 
low sulfur additions, zero filtration regimes, the search for integrity, authenticity, traceability in wine. More than ever before, you need the new world's obsessive attention to detail and passion for hygiene in the winery. If you're not going to end up, if you are going to end up with a delicious glass of wine at the end of it rather than a glass of cloudy vinegar. <laughs> and climate change? The old world view is rigid. The old world regulations stifle innovation and enshrine tradition. You can't get away with that anymore. The last time the world was this warm was 115,000 years ago. The last time there was this much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was 4 million years ago. Can things stay the same? No, they can't. Can rules put in place 100, 200 years ago still apply? No, they can't. Must Bordeaux and Burgundy and Barolo and Rioja and Champagne and the River Rhine and Monte Cucco, must they change or die? Yes, they must. And how will these great old word classics do it? I can see it. How will these great old world classics do it? By enlisting the ideas, the techniques, the adaptability, and the passion of the new world state of mind. Oh, and as my friend James May said, never speak in public for longer than you can make love. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I'm now really self-conscious about speaking in public. <laughs> anyway, um, before we, um, I invite the speakers to talk about what they each thought of the other one's mm. case. I thought it'd be interesting to announce the online pre-vote, which I haven't actually looked at the results for yet, so this will be a surprise for everyone. So, <clears throat> before the debate... 51% of the audience went for Old World. 
24% went for New World, which means there's 25% undecided. So there's quite a lot to play for, guys. This is exciting. Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. yes. Exciting. <laughs> good, 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 good. So um, now that uh, all the votes should be hopefully coming in for now, having listened to these wonderful cases and tasted these wines, well, I'll be interested to see how the votes are going to change. But now I'm just curious to see what each speaker thought of the other one's case. So, Jancis, what did you think about Oz's particular emphasis on climate change and sustainability? Well, I, I don't think that... I think he's on a bit weak ground there. Right. Because uh, it's new world wine countries... Uh, wine regions, by and large, that are much more threatened by climate change. And he, he does paint this picture of an old world that is set in aspic, but that's pretty... Uh, you know, the world you were describing, Oz, is from the last century. Uh, the new world now is full of young movers and shakers. And, for instance, on climate change, Bordeaux, which you were portraying as hopelessly stuffy... Um, it is in some, some respects. God, you can never get a straight answer from a Bordeaux wine producer, that's for sure. But they have recognised the problem of climate change and they have recently, as, as you know, authorised the experimentation with completely new varieties imported from hotter climes in Spain and Portugal in particular. So they are moving with the times. Does that break with the tradition argument? Yes. Well, no, it just means that they are innovating. And as I said, if I go back to page one, which I skipped, um, the tradition is no longer king in the old world, but they, they're no longer hidebound by tradition, but they respect it where appropriate. But, so they're moving with the times. And yeah. whereas poor old... Australia and California are plagued by terrible shortages of water and, and fires. fires. They're, they're in, the, they're in I, I mean, I feel sorry for them. And uh, so many lovely wine producers there. But, God, it's, life is tough there. Mm-hmm. Oz? Yeah, I was talking to a Bordeaux bureaucrat um, <laughs> about a month ago. And I asked him about where when we were going to see um, Grenache in the Bordeaux vineyards and Tourigue Nationale mm-hmm. and that other insane, dark, tasteless grape called Arninon with too many N's and too many O's and too many A's and too many C's in it. None of us can ever pronounce it. Anyway, it tastes pretty filthy. Um, and I said, um, I said, when are we going to see these new grapes in, in the Bordeaux vineyards? And he said, uh, it's just, we've just made a statement. Uh, he said, come back in 10 years. And I thought, that's probably exactly what's going to happen. Last year, I was in, um, uh, uh, in Bordeaux and did a tasting of the old, old varieties that they've given up. And frankly, that's a much better way, Jancis, I think, to, to go. Go back to some of those old varieties. They've got several very good late varieties already, Petit Verdo being one. But you, you were saying, oh, isn't it great because New Zealand's so sustainable. But then so is, say, Alsace. It's not a, a, a new world versus old world thing. There are some regions that are well-behaved think, and some that aren't yeah, in I, both I think that of one of Alsace's problem is that, mm-hmm. to my mind, Alsace now has become, everything has become so ripe in Alsace that I, well, I must admit, I, I, I can't tell one great variety from another half the time in Alsace. Mm-hmm. And you look at someone like Burgundy, which is, Pinot Noir is a, is, a, 
is supposedly a very delicate grape that is very, very specific about where it wants to grow. I would say increasingly that's not so. Um, but Pinot Noir can make really rather nice wines in all kinds of places you never expected. They just don't taste like Burgundy, which is absolutely fine by me because, I mean, if I want Burgundy, I should go to Burgundy. And if I want Chilean Pinot Noir, I'll go to Chile. But in the last vintage, last year, 2018, people in great villages like Von Romanet, Chambon Musigny, Jevre uh, Chambertin, Maurice Saint Denis were struggling to bring in their grapes at less than 15, 15.5% alcohol. I tasted Grand Cru wines from Maurice Saint Denis and Chambon Musigny and Von Romanet at between 16 and 16.3% alcohol. Now, they were jolly nice wines, but I would never in a blind tasting in 100 years have got them down as Bon Mar or Morris or Claude La Roche, and I'd never in 100 years want to pay £100 a bottle for them. Well, that, certainly. We haven't even talked about, about price, price, have we? <laughs> the average bottle in this country is £5.39, so how do you compensate that with the emphasis on sustainability? How is old world or new world even an interest for the average consumer? Possibly not, but if we want... Are we going to talk about price at all? Yeah. Oh, we could, because I mean, yes. the whole, yeah. it's a very important point, Amelia, because um, the wines that most of us drink on, uh, just in a sort of everyday um, way are probably called Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc or Cabernet or Merlot, and they may well be coming from great swathes of mostly France, but to some extent, Spain and Italy. California. Um, a lot from Central Valley and California. I'm not sure whether this room is a particularly oh. strong point for Blossom Hill. And, well, uh, how, many Blossom, how many Blossom Hill drinkers in this room? Not many fingers went up there, Jans. But I take your point, because I, I actually find that the Californians in, in Central Valley make wine very much for what they think that, that Californian rather sweeter kind of palate is. But frankly, um, if you want to make a sweet wine with a few grams of sugar in it, more people will buy it at a lower level, so you get a broader and flatter look. But that's not what the New World does in Spain or in France or in Italy. That brings in extremely focused, hygienic, um, quality and detail-obsessed winemaking to the flat broad, dull vinelands of the Mediterranean and gives us the five or six or seven pound bottle of wine, which is nice to drink, um, which we all probably drink on a daily basis. But going back to St. Wine, then actually is wine really about mood and situation? So therefore, Jancis, what would you drink if you were in California? Oh, California wine? Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. And you'd get real pleasure from that? Yeah. Yes. But there are probably... The number of great California producers, for me, mm-hmm. is probably um, 10. And the number of... I know you have a ton dress for California wines. I'm, I'm sorry. And whereas the number of great French or producers, for me, would probably be in the hundreds. Because yeah. my argument that they've just had more time to get it right. right. Yeah. I... I take your point. Um, Ray! I've taken lots of your points. I'm not sure that the word great is one that I would use very often because this so-called thing of great in inverted commas, great wine, it's, it's actually in the kind of world I live in, it, I don't come across that word great very often when it comes to wine, but exciting wine, scintillating wine, um, 
thrilling wine, refreshing wine, wine that you want a second glass of. Those are the, that's the kind of language I talk. And I think that California and Chile and Argentina and New Zealand and Australia have got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that I can think of. And most of them, with the possible exception of California, I can afford to drink them. Certainly not Napa Valley, that's for sure. Not much Napa Valley. Well, now I'm actually... Thank you so much, guys. I'm actually going to now bring the spotlight to the audience, and I'm going to take questions from the floor. So... Yes, right back there. Yes, that women, yeah, panel number three, the lady with the blonde hair there. Yes, fantastic. Hello. I'm surprised that neither of you have touched on Vine Age. So, of course, with the arrival of phylloxera in the old world, we only have a handful of vineyards that are pre-phylloxera in the Canary Islands and in France and Spain. Whereas Oz in the new world, you have huge expanses, Lodi, Contra Costa, Chile, um, and many more that are pre-phylloxera. So does that mean that possibly in the future, the new world will in fact become the old world? Should I, should I come? <laughs> Can I, I, you're, you're, it's a very, very astute observation. And I, when sort of assembling my arguments, I went up that kind of Vine Age track and then rapidly came back because I remembered that actually the world's biggest repositories of really old vines are, as you quite rightly say, California, some in the Barossa Valley, for instance. South Africa has some some pretty old vines as well, and they're very good at cataloguing them. Whereas in particularly France, they're so efficient in the wine wine production that they don't let vines get very old because their their productivity goes down so there are it's extraordinary actually how relatively few really old vines there are in Europe and it's I think you Oz touched on this that that the Bordelais realized that to get really really old examples of their own varieties they have they're going to Chile and um, perhaps Malbec to Argentina but um, I, th- I think it's a big leap to say because they've got a few pretty small uh, plantings of old vines in the, n- the new world that they will become reversed. Um, but they might bring back some of the, the vine stock, but I don't think it's going to totally tumble over. But it's actually it's really quite an, an attractive concept mm. because, of course, if you look at where the biggest concentration of really old vines, going back to the 1840s, is that's actually in South Australia. South Australia, which is the heartland of modern, um, cheap commercial wine, has actually got more really, really old vines than, than anywhere else. And there's a, a mood around the world that Jancis picked up on uh, when she was talking about back to the future. And she was talking about Kvevri and talking about earthenware pots and all these kind of things. Well, the interesting thing is that when you've taken technology as far as you can um, and you're bright and you're enthusiastic and you're keen and you want to innovate and you want to change everything, sometimes you have to say, I can't go forward anymore. I have to go back. Uh, and as Jancis was saying, going back two generations or maybe three, or maybe four, but not one, I would be right in saying, wouldn't I? The one generation ago was not the best generation in in Europe. Two or three generations ago, you look at what they were doing, back to the future, 
Stop interfering. Use the yeasts that are in the vineyards. Cut back on sulfur. Don't use herbicides. Don't use fertilizers. You're actually sort of saying, well, that's sort of what things were like in the 1930s or the 1940s, early part of the 1950s. The one thing now, of course, with climate change is that we have a far, far greater chance of making seven, eight, nine, even ten good vintages in a row, where in the 1930s you'd be lucky if you got two good vintages in a row. Thank you. Um, ah, Monsieur Spurrier, oh, the man who, who organised the judgment um, of Paris. Yeah. Okay, so Stephen Spurrier, I held a tasting in 1976 that you might have heard of, which in the new world beat the old world. Um, and, well, in fact, um, California beat Burgundy in France. And because the Bordelais were so upset that they said their wines were tasted too young, we were tasting wines from the 70 and 71 vintage in Bordeaux against the 72 and 73 vintage in California, I held it again in New York, and uh, there were two wines in the top five in 76 from California. There were three wines in the top five in 1986. I didn't want to hold it again because the Baudelaire considered that I wrecked their 85 campaign. <laughs> but anyway, it was thanks to Jacob Lord Rothschild and Robert Mondavi that I held it again simultaneously in California at 10 a.m. in the morning and in London at Berry Brothers at 6 p.m. in the afternoon. And both Oz and, and Jancis were on the panel in London. And when the votes were counted, uh, California took the first five places. <laughs> Very good. That proved one thing. Uh, then, I didn't want to do any more blind tasting, but at Berry Brothers, we had an open tasting of much the same wines from the 2000 vintage. Both white, uh, we did it in 2006. It was 2003 or four for white and 2000 for reds. And in that tasting, Burgundy against California Chardonnay, uh, Claret against California Cabernet, the old world beat the pants off the new world, which drew me to conclude that in 1970, the old world was resting on its laurels. They were broke too, but they were also not trying. And by the time that 30 years had rolled around, the new world had taken it easy and was resting on its laurels. But the point I'd like to make is resting on laurels is no longer a concept in the old world. Certainly not. Whatever Oz might think, the new world has reinvented the wheel. The wheel began in the old world, and the old world is reinventing it. Panel three. Panel three. I have to express an interest in this debate. I have recovered from the watery grave that my brother observed beside the ooze many years ago. I hope nonetheless that you will feel that I can make an unbiased contribution. <laughs> my wine friends in France, which are different from my brother's wine friends in France, <laughs> make this remark. They say, le terroir, which after all is the geology of millions of years, it is, the, it is the sun of millions of years, all of those qualities. The terroir, c'est la réponse de l'homme au terroir. 
Terroir is the response of man to the terroir. And it leads me to this view that what is becoming more interesting wine is not some absolute quality which is very characteristic of, let us say, the old world, which is, it is characteristic of the fact that it has the particular type of soil or drainage or sunshine, all of those characteristics I'm seeking for. Much more interesting is that it is a manifestation of the capacity of mankind to develop new ideas and respond to things. And that's a hugely fascinating move forward in which we ignore participate. I have to say, looking around me here, I realize that we have above us, and we should not ignore the premises in which we are. And it says, from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be any more pain. And this is the key thing. For the former things are passed away. Did you know he was going to Did you know? <laughs> it may not be him. It may be someone... It may be, imposter. It, it's an imposter. Is that a hologram up there? <laughs> Panel two. Uh, yes, I'd like to, by the way, fantastic um, lecture so far. Um, I'd just like to ask both of you, what would be your desert island bottle of wine? Ah. Ah. Now, I do, <laughs> I have been asked this before, and my, my answer is perhaps predictably practical. You never know whether your desert island is going to be hot or cold, actually. <laughs> So I would choose a lovely old Madeira, not just because you can go at it as slowly as you like, and it's not going to deteriorate even from an, in an open bottle, but if the island is hot, the acidity is going to keep you refreshed, and if it's cold, the alcohol is going to keep you warm. But I would also add, by the way, just if I don't get a chance to make this point, you keep saying, oh, the old world's bound by rules and stuff like that. But nowadays in, in Europe, you don't have to obey those rules. We're seeing all those, these wines coming out called Van de France or just Spanish wine or Italian wine where people are saying, I'm, just, I'm not going to bother with the Appalachian Controle. And, and they're experimenting and lively. And Europe is full of excitement. New world state of mind. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm going to appropriate, though, Europe is old world. <laughs> and just before Oz answers this question, I just want to say the vote is about to start. So hopefully this has given you a lot of things to think about. Oz, what would be your desert island wine? Well, I, I'm presuming that the sun will shine a lot. Um, I'm presuming the water is salty. I will swim. I will be endlessly thirsty. So, to be honest, my desert island of wine isn't quite wine. It would be a pint of freshly drawn English country bitter, as they used to brew it about 30 years ago, from the best possible barrel in the best possible condition, just at cellar temperature. And the pint would go on and gone, that giving like and giving to me. and giving. <laughs> Panel one. So with Britons throwing away 25 billion or so gallons of wine every year, 
um, and I'm sure we all love new world and old world. Um, what are producers doing to try and make things more sustainable for, which is a, obviously a massively growing market? And people talk about the box wine revolution, and do you see old wine catching up to new wine in this sector? Chances. I'm not sure I understood the question. No, I didn't, throwing I didn't away realize we billions. Were throwing 25 million gallons of wine. I've got some friends who could help with that. Yeah. <laughs> Where's this wine being thrown away? Who's throwing it down the drain? Gosh. Not any more user no, I know. Not anyone I know. No. What but, do you think? Sorry, we've got the but, wrong. How do you think but, have, but actually, I think this point about <laughs> the box sustainability is, is, yeah, that is important. Ah, yes. Because uh, packaging, I think, I think yeah. is a really, yeah. really yeah. point show. Re- crazy that s- most wine is still put into bottles, which are the most expensive things to, in terms of carbon to make and to transport. No point in putting really cheap wine into bottles. Mm. Um, you know, it should all be being transported in boxes, in pouches, in cans. Yeah. If, if I hope that is, is that sort of the yeah, right because, area? Because the technology now for things like boxes and pouches and cans and cans, the, the and cans, cans and cans. That's what that's what she drinks on the tube going home. Uh, the the. That, well, thank you, the craft beer world, for that, because we've had cans around for soft drinks for God knows how long, and, and no one has made any attempt to make them good enough. The, it's the linings and the polymers and things which really matter inside. The craft beer people have actually managed to make the can possibly the best way to serve a lot of craft beers. And we're now seeing wine. It, it's literally happened in the last two years. Mm-hmm. Wine in cans, possibly even the last one year, Wine in cans now can be just as good as a wine out of a bottle, and I could never have said that three years ago. And all from kegs in restaurants and all that kegs, kind of thing. Excellent idea. And the, the very uh, well, beautifully run, actually, Jackson Family Estates in California, which is privately run, um, and it's an international group of wineries, they, um, they've been very good on ana- analyzing sustainability, and their sustainability chief divulged the other day that when they looked at the, the, their carbon tally, the, the, what used up a whole third, one third of it was what they were using in glass production and transport. Yeah. Cost an enormous Far amount more of than anybody realised, yeah. Usher Ford, thank you. Hello. Hi. Ooh, how exciting. Hey. I, I, I Does wonder everyone about... know who this is? <gasps> Monsieur uh, Hugh, Hugh Johnson. Johnson. Hey. Hey. <laughs> it's been a gripping debate. I've enjoyed every word of it. But I question the basic premise, new world and old world. I'm partly to blame for this because I think I coined the distinction in my first book published in 1966. I had a chapter called New World and Old World, and I, just, I, I explained very clearly, but by Old World, I meant Europe, where wine was first made. By New World, I meant anywhere else that wine had been planted. But now I think more deeply about it. What do you call the parts of Italy, 
of Greece, of other countries, which are bringing back absolutely unheard of grape varieties, planting them in places which are definitely not traditional, and making totally original wines, which are so worth tasting. Nothing quite like that has happened in the New World, because the New World has been so busy imitating the Old World and planting its best grape varieties that it's got stuck. That isn't the case in Italy and Greece. It's not, they're not stuck at all. They're really exploring new ground with new ideas and new resources. I think we should remember that in favor of what is described here geographically as the Old World. I think Hugh is absolutely right. Some of the most exciting original things are indeed happening around the Mediterranean, going further over towards northern Mesopotamia, heading up towards the Caucasus. Um, I would say that the only reason that this wonderful old world is being revived is because they have a new world state of mind. And, and Jancis, do you want to add to... Uh, only that I am hugely flattered that two great heroes, Stephen Spurrier and Hugh Johnson, are here this evening. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I'm now going to announce the results, and I'm just going to refresh everyone's memory of the pre-vote results. So before the debate, we had 51% at the old world, 24% new world, 25% undecided. Well, the good news is we've got some very convincing speakers because there's only 5% who are undecided. So congratulations both. And it comes down to 57 and 38. <laughs> Old world 57, new world 38. It's this. Good one. Good one. <laughs> okay. But both have done fantastically because actually there was an increase of 14% in the new world and an increase of 6% in old. So both debates have done extremely well. So I would have a huge round of applause for some yes. really inspiring and very so generous you, you speakers. More. Yeah. And very well done. <laughs> Done. And as well as our two wonderful debaters this evening, I would also love to thank Waitrose and Partners for the delicious wine, which you're all enjoying. And for Intelligence Squared for organising this very interactive, lively event. Um, thank you so much for thank allowing you. us the opportunity. Now, here's where we embrace tenderly.
Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Cape and edited by Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback on what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts on podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.